Section 4 of The Hungry Stones and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Hungry Stones and Other Stories by Rabindranath Tagore. Translated by C.F. Andrews. The Homecoming. Fatik Chakravarti was ringleader among the boys of the village. A new mischief got into his head. There was a heavy log lying on the mud flat of the river, waiting to be shaped into a mast for a boat. He decided that they should all work together to shift the log by main force from its place and roll it away. The owner of the log would be angry and surprised, and they would all enjoy the fun. Everyone seconded the proposal, and it was carried unanimously. But just as the fun was about to begin, Makhan, Fatik's young brother, sauntered up and sat down on the log in front of them all without a word. The boys were puzzled for a moment. He was pushed rather timidly by one of the boys and told to get up, but he remained quite unconcerned. He appeared like a young philosopher meditating on the futility of games. Fatik was furious. Makhan, he cried, if you don't get down this minute, I'll thrash you. Makhan only moved to a more comfortable position. Now, if Fatik was to keep his regal dignity before the public, it was clear he ought to carry out his threat. But his courage failed him at the crisis. His fertile brain, however, rapidly seized upon a new manoeuvre that would discomfit his brother and afford his followers an added amusement. He gave the word of command to roll the log and Makhan over together. Makhan heard the order and made it a point of honour to stick on. But he overlooked the fact, like those who attempt earthly fame in other matters, that there was peril in it. The boys began to heave at the log with all their might, calling out, One, two, three, go. At the word go, the log went, and with it went Makhan's philosophy, glory and all. All the other boys shouted themselves hoarse with delight, but Fatik was a little frightened. He knew what was coming. And sure enough, Makhan rose from Mother Earth, blind as fate, and screaming like the Furies. He pushed at Fatik, and scratched his face, and beat him, and kicked him, and then went crying home. The first act of the drama was over. Fatik wiped his face, and sat down on the edge of a sunken barge on the river bank, and began to chew a piece of grass. A boat came up to the landing, and a middle-aged man with grey hair and dark moustache stepped on shore. He saw the boy sitting there doing nothing, and asked him where the Chakravartis lived. Fatik went on chewing the grass and said, over there. But it was quite impossible to tell where he pointed. The stranger asked him again. He swung his legs to and fro on the side of the barge and said, go and find out, and continued to chew the grass as before. But now a servant came down from the house and told Fatik his mother wanted him. Fatik refused to move, but the servant was the master on this occasion. He took Fatik up roughly and carried him, kicking and struggling in impotent rage. When Fatik came into the house, his mother saw him. She called out angrily, So you have been hitting Makhan again? Fatik answered indignantly, No, I haven't. Who told you that? His mother shouted, Don't tell lies. You have. Fatik said suddenly, I tell you I haven't. You ask Makhan. But Makhan thought it best to stick to his previous statement. He said, Yes, mother, Fatik did hit me. 
Fatik's patient was already exhausted. He could not hear this injustice. He rushed at Markhan and hammered him with blows. Take that, he cried, and that, and that, for telling lies. His mother took Markhan's side in a moment and pulled Fatik away, beating him with her hands. When Fatik pushed her aside, she shouted out, What are you, little villain? Would you hit your own mother? It was at this critical juncture that the grey-haired stranger arrived. He asked what was the matter. Fatik looked sheepish and ashamed. But when his mother stepped back and looked at the stranger, her anger was changed to surprise. For she recognized her brother and cried, Why, Dada, where have you come from? As she said these words, she bowed to the ground and touched his feet. Her brother had gone away soon after she had married, and he had started business in Bombay. His sister had lost her husband while he was in Bombay. Bishambar had now come back to Calcutta and had at once made inquiries about his sister. He had then hastened to see her as soon as he found out where she was. The next few days were full of rejoicing. The brother asked after the education of the two boys. He was told by his sister that Fatik was a perpetual nuisance. He was lazy, disobedient, and wild. But Makhan was as good as gold, as quiet as a lamb, and very fond of reading. Bishambar quietly offered to take Fatik off his sister's hands and educate him with his own children in Calcutta. The widowed mother readily agreed. When his uncle asked Fatik if he would like to go to Calcutta with him, his joy knew no bounds, and he said, Oh, yes, uncle. In a way, that made it quite clear that he meant it. It was an immense relief to the mother to get rid of Fatik. She had a prejudice against the boy, and no love was lost between the two brothers. She was in daily fear that he would either drown Makhan some day in the river, or break his head in a fight, or run him into some danger or other. At the same time, she was somewhat distressed to see Fatik's extreme eagerness to get away. Fatik, as soon as all was settled, kept asking his uncle every minute when they were to start. He was on pins and needles all day long with excitement, and lay awake most of the night. He bequeathed to Makhan in perpetuity his fishing rod, his big kite, and his marbles. Indeed, at this time of departure, his generosity towards Makhan was unbounded. When they reached Calcutta, Fatik made the acquaintance of his aunt for the first time. She was by no means pleased with this unnecessary addition to her family. She found her own three boys quite enough to manage without taking anyone else. And to bring a village lad of fourteen into their midst was terribly upsetting. Bishambar should really have thought twice before committing such an indiscretion. In this world of human affairs, there is no worse nuisance than a boy at the age of fourteen. He is neither ornamental nor useful. It is impossible to shower affection on him as on a little boy, and he is always getting in the way. If he talks with a childish lisp, he is called a baby, and if he answers in a grown-up way, he is called impertinent. In fact, any talk at all from him is resented. Then he is at the unattractive growing age. He grows out of his clothes with indecent haste. His voice grows hoarse and breaks and quavers. His face grows suddenly angular and unsightly. It is easy to excuse the shortcomings of early childhood, but it is hard to tolerate even unavoidable lapses in a boy of fourteen. The lad himself becomes painfully self-conscious. When he talks with elderly people, he is either unduly forward or else so unduly shy that he appears ashamed of his very existence. 
Yet it is at this very age when in his heart of hearts a young lad most craves for recognition and love, and he becomes the devoted slave of any one who shows him consideration. But none dare openly love him, for that would be regarded as undue indulgence, and therefore bad for the boy. So what with scolding and chiding, he becomes very much like a stray dog that has lost his master. For a boy of fourteen, his own home is the only paradise. To live in a strange house with strange people is little short of torture, while the height of bliss is to receive the kind looks of women and never to be slighted by them. It was anguish to fatigue to be the unwelcome guest in his aunt's house, despised by this elderly woman and slighted on every occasion. If she ever asked him to do anything for her, he would be so overjoyed that he would overdo it, and then she would tell him not to be so stupid, but to get on with his lessons. The cramped atmosphere of neglect in his aunt's house oppressed Fatik so much that he felt that he could hardly breathe. He wanted to go out into the open country and fill his lungs and breathe freely. But there was no open country to go to. Surrounded on all sides by Calcutta houses and walls, he would only dream night after night of his village home and long to be back there. He remembered the glorious meadow where he used to fly his kite all day long, the broad river banks where he would wander about the livelong day, singing and shouting for joy, the narrow brook where he could go and dive and swim at any time he liked. He thought of his band of boy companions over whom he was despot, and above all the memory of that tyrant mother of his, who had such a prejudice against him, occupied him day and night. A kind of physical love like that of animals, a longing to be in the presence of the one who is loved, an inexpressible wistfulness during absence, a silent cry of the inmost heart for the mother, like the lowing of a calf in the twilight. This love, which was almost an animal instinct, agitated the shy, nervous, lean, uncouth and ugly boy. No one could understand it, but it preyed upon his mind continually. There was no more backward boy in the whole school than Futtick. He gaped and remained silent when the teacher asked him a question, and like an overladen ass patiently suffered all the blows that came down on his back. When other boys were out at play, he stood wistfully by the window and gazed at the roofs of the distant houses, and if by chance he espied children playing on the open terrace of any roof, his heart would ache with longing. One day he summoned up all his courage and asked his uncle, Uncle, when can I go home? His uncle answered, Wait till the holidays come. But the holidays would not come till November, and there was a long time still to wait. One day Fatik lost his lesson book. Even with the help of books, he had found it very difficult indeed to prepare his lesson. Now it was impossible. Day after day the teacher would cane him unmercifully. His condition became so abjectly miserable that even his cousins were ashamed to own him. They began to jeer and insult him more than the other boys. He went to his aunt at last and told her that he had lost his book. His aunt pursed her lips in contempt and said, You great clumsy country lout! How can I afford with all my family to buy you new books five times a month? That night, on his way back from school, Futtick had a bad headache with a fit of shivering. He felt he was going to have an attack of malarial fever. His one great fear was that he would be a nuisance to his aunt. The next morning, Fatik was nowhere to be seen. All searches in the neighborhood proved futile. The rain had been pouring in torrents all night, and those who went out in search of the boy got drenched through to the skin. 
At last Bishambar asked help from the police. At the end of the day, a police van stopped at the door before the house. It was still raining and the streets were all flooded. Two constables brought out Fatik in their arms and placed him before Bishambar. He was wet through from head to foot, muddy all over his face, and eyes flushed red with fever, and his limbs all trembling. Bishambar carried him in his arms and took him into the inner apartment. When his wife saw him, she exclaimed, What a heap of trouble this boy has given us! Hadn't you better send him home? Fatik heard her words and sobbed out loud, Uncle, I was just going home, but they dragged me back again. The fever rose very high, and all that night the boy was delirious. Bishambar brought in a doctor. Fatik opened his eyes, flushed with fever, and looked up to the ceiling and said vacantly, Uncle, have the holidays come yet? May I go home? Bishambar wiped the tears from his own eyes and took Fatik's lean and burning hands in his own and sat by him through the night. The boy began again to mutter. At last his voice became excited. Mother! he cried. Don't beat me like that, mother. I am telling the truth. The next day Fatik became conscious for a short time. He turned his eyes about the room as if expecting someone to come. At last, with an air of disappointment, his head sank back on the pillow. He turned his face to the wall with a deep sigh. Bishambar knew his thoughts, and bending down his head whispered, Fatik, I have sent for your mother. The day went by. The doctor said in a troubled voice that the boy's condition was very critical. Fatik began to cry out, By the mark! Three fathoms! By the mark! Four fathoms! By the mark! He had heard the sailor on the river steamer calling out the mark on the plumb line. Now he was himself plumbing an unfathomable sea. Later in the day, Fatik's mother burst into the room like a whirlwind and began to toss from side to side and moan and cry in a loud voice. Bishambar tried to calm her agitation, but she flung herself on the bed and cried, Fatik, my darling, my darling! Fatik stopped his restless movement for a moment. His hand ceased beating up and down. He said, Eh? The mother cried again, Fatik, my darling, my darling! Fatik very slowly turned his head, and without seeing anybody said, Mother, the holidays have come. End of Section 4 Read for you by Chiquita Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.